It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. So I'm sitting here thinking about the fleeting nature of television fame. And what brings us to mind is the death of Roger Mudd at the age of 93. Now, there was a time, if you're of a certain age, you know this, when Roger Mudd was, you know, one of the big broadcasting personalities, uh, incredibly famous journalist. And I was thinking, you know, if you're under 40 and he hasn't been active in recent decades, you know, maybe you've never heard of Roger Mudd or you have only a dim idea of who he was. Uh, he rose to national prominence as a CBS News correspondent. He wasn't flamboyant. He was a great uh, acute political analyst, a great writer, uh, just sort of the complete package. And then, you know, I remember this vividly, in early 1981, uh, the race to succeed Walter Cronkite in the anchor chair was on, and it was Roger Mudd versus Dan Rather. Each man had his fans. CBS went with Rather. Mudd got pissed off, left, went to NBC, where he was paired with Tom Brokaw. They were co-anchors on NBC Nightly News. But it turned out they were no Chet Huntley and David Brinkley. The chemistry didn't quite work. Uh, 17 months later, Brokaw got solo possession of the job. Uh, Mudd stuck around doing political reporting and documentaries for NBC, and then later he moved on to PBS. It is so telling that the one thing Roger Mudd is noted for, he probably gets too much credit for, but this was a time when ABC, CBS, NBC just absolutely dominated um, media coverage. I mean, they were the big three enchiladas. It was uh, late 1979. No cable networks existed at the time. And Ted Kennedy was gearing up to challenge Jimmy Carter for the Democratic presidential nomination the next year. And, you know, there have been years and years of speculation every four years. Would Ted run? Would Ted Kennedy run uh, since he was the last surviving Kennedy brother after the, the, the tragic deaths of Jack and Bobby. And so he sat down uh, with Roger Mudd for this big CBS profile slash interview. And the first question from Roger Mudd was, why do you want to be president? And Kennedy just absolutely botched it. He was like, well, I'm were I to, to make the announcement and to run the the reasons I would run is because I have a great belief in this country. And he stammered on and on, never really came up that he had a rationale to run for president other than he felt like he could knock off Jimmy Carter. And who knows what would have happened if he had run against Ronald Reagan. So in a way, it shows you the value of the simple question. It wasn't a gotcha question. It wasn't a 17-part question. Why do you want to be president? Another way, I mean, the only reason we remember it is because Ted Kennedy couldn't answer the question. Roger Mudd was just asking him something. It's, you know, basically journalism 101. But it, it, again, it kind of reflected his personality to ask the most basic question. And, and, and Kennedy was said to be upset that he was caught off guard. Like, what? If you can't answer that question, then why are you running if you don't have a rationale? All right, moving on to more modern times here. Uh, Disney Plus is at it again, finding more and more movies and TV shows that are just in the light of the woke standards of 2021 uh, must be warned about because kids might see it and it might be terrible. So, for example, we have Dumbo. And uh, now they're slapped these warning labels on. Disney Plus says the crows and musical number pay homage to racist minstrel shows where white performers with blackened faces and tattered clothing imitated and ridiculed enslaved Africans. The leader of the group uh, in Dumbo is Jim Crow, which shares the name of laws and enforced racial segregation in the South. Well, that's true. That's, I mean, why was that name? Uh, Peter Pan. Disney Plus says the film portrays Native people in a stereotypical manner that reflects neither the diversity of Native peoples nor their authentic cultural traditions. It shows them speaking in unintelligible language. 
and refers to them as Redskins, an offensive term. Well, you can ask Dan Snyder about that. That's why we now have the Washington football team. By the way, why doesn't he come up with a new name? It's been like a year now. And then finally, the Aristocats, uh, quote, the Siamese cat Shungan is depicted as a racist character of East Asian peoples with exaggerated stereotypical traits such as slanted eyes and buck teeth. He sings in poorly accented English, voiced by a white actor and plays the piano with chopsticks. All right, I'm not disputing any of that, but also you get this warning now. Uh, this program includes negative depictions and or mistreatment of people or cultures. Um, but, you know, it's history. Is every single movie that doesn't live up to the, you know, perfectly pure, non-stereotypical, uh, all everybody deserves respect standards of today, does it have to be warned about? You know, I understand these are children's shows and kids are watching this stuff, but don't parents have a say in what their kids watch? All right, let's get down to business here with number one. So we have a pretty successful ramp up now of the vaccine program. In fact, uh, President Biden today is going to announce that he's going to get another 100 million doses from Johnson & Johnson by year's end. And I have been saying for weeks, if not months, that while Biden, and this was true even during the transition, Biden absolutely deserved credit, deserves credit for a aggressive and um, forceful effort to take a, a screwed up vaccine distribution program and get enough doses so that now he has set the goal and it looks like we may get there, uh, that every American who wants a shot will be able to get a shot by late May. But I also say, and I've said this repeatedly, I've said this on the air, that Donald Trump deserves credit for creating and developing Operation Warp Speed. That by the time Biden took office, we had Two vaccines miraculously fast, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. But the media are so polarized, it's like, oh, no, 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 Trump screwed up, he didn't do anything, versus, you know, Trump did everything and Biden just came and kind of, you know, rode on his coattails. Like, you got to pick sides. It's one or the other. You can't have a nuanced position that says, you know, both presidents, at least in this arena, I'm not talking about the whole coronavirus pandemic, uh, where, you know, it, the historical record shows that Donald Trump didn't take it seriously enough at first and said it would vanish and, you know, talked it down and came up with hydroxychloroquine and all that. Just talking about the vaccine program. So the New York Times, to its credit, actually has a fair and balanced piece on this subject today, regardless of where your partisan sympathies lie. And it basically says I was right. It doesn't mention me, but I'm going to declare that, you know, uh, you know, you often get dragged, especially on Twitter, where everything's so polarized, you know, um, you got to take a stand. you got to be on a team. you got to say Trump is great and Biden's a horrible president. He's already ruined the country in just five or six weeks. Or you got to say Biden is fine and we have somebody in the Oval Office who knows what he's doing and Donald Trump, who's such a danger to democracy and a fascist to boot, should never be allowed to hold power again. Okay, so the New York Times in this news story by Sharon Lafreniere says that it's true that production of two of the three federally authorized vaccines has sped up in part because of the demands and directives of the new president's team. But the announcement was also a triumph of another kind, public relations. Because Biden had tamped down expectations early, the quicker timetable uh, conjured an image of a White House running on all cylinders and leaving its predecessor's effort in the dust. And here's the key graph. 
A closer look at the ramp-up announced last week offers a more mixed picture, one in which the new administration expanded and bulked up a vaccine production effort whose key elements were in place when Biden took over for Trump. Both administrations deserve credit, although neither one wants to grant much to the other. And that's the story. On this subject, both presidents deserve some credit. And made it much, you know, I understand they are taking shots at each other, but, you know, where is the media? Finally, a, a, a balanced report that has the details. So, for example, the things that Biden has done has been very, very good. He's made more aggressive use of the Defense Production Act and, in fact, used that act, which Trump used also to a lesser degree, to help Pfizer obtain the heavy machinery that it needed to expand its plant in Michigan. Therefore, it could make the doses, once you know the vaccine was tested and found to be safe and effective, could make the doses more quickly. Um, now, Trump had used that law, but only for things like plastic liners, not this factory equipment that Pfizer needed. Also, Biden's top aides pushed and pushed to get Johnson & Johnson, which has recently been approved, to force a, a key subcontractor into round-the-clock operations. They went from normal, like, eight hours a day to 24 hours a day so its vaccine could be bottled faster. The company was falling behind on its production targets, and it helped to have this subcontractor be forced, you know, the federal government under this Korean War-era law can force companies to make stuff that are deemed to be vital to national security. Biden also sped up negotiations so that Merck, the other giant pharmaceutical company whose own vaccine efforts were unsuccessful, would work with its rival Pfizer in helping to package and market this. Uh, and that was helpful as well. Now, here comes the other side of the story. At the same time, Biden benefited hugely, says the Times, from the waves of vaccine production that the Trump administration had set in motion. Uh, both Pfizer and Moderna, even before Biden was president, found their manufacturing footing, and they were able to double and triple the outputs from their factories. Um, and then by the time Biden takes office, uh, Pfizer was able to get six doses instead of five out of every vial. To the Trump administration aides, the new president's crowing sounds off key. Biden is proclaiming victory off his predecessor's achievements while wrongly grumbling about a mess he says he inherited, they say. And then the rest of the piece is kind of like the sniping back and forth. And I just think it's a breath of fresh air. Like, it doesn't mean, you know, you can have your opinions. You can like Joe Biden, not like Joe Biden as president. You can miss Donald Trump or be happy he's out of office. But this is a national emergency, and they both did some good things on this one crucial program that, you know, remember, the media were like, no, Trump was crazy. He's not, there's not going to be a vaccine by the end of the year. And, of course, the Pfizer and Moderna deserve a lot of the credit. But Trump wasn't crazy. The media were wrong. And it may be that these, now with the J&J &J vaccine, are going to bring us out of the pandemic much closer than anybody could imagine. Now the challenge is to get it into people's arms where there's still a lot of problems at the state, local, city, and county level. All right, number two. Uh, speaking of this... Um, Politico has a piece because, you know, there's been a lot of criticism lately that Joe Biden, we're coming up now on 50 days, um, hasn't held a full-scale news conference and doesn't take many questions from the press. He takes one or two here and there, and that's not nearly enough. And the press is starting to get ticked off about it. So Politico has this sort of pretty friendly to the White House piece, obviously fed in part by White House aides, 
saying, no, you know, Biden spent the first months hunkering down, working on getting the vaccine program uh, together and working on getting this um, coronavirus relief package through Congress, which as of today, he will have done. The House is going to vote later today to give final passes and send to the president. That's the same bill approved by the Senate. Uh, $1.9 trillion. And this is a significant accomplishment. With actually polls showing um, bipartisan support, about a third of Republicans like the $1,400 stimulus checks, they like the aid to schools, they like the more money for the vaccine program. Uh, there's a little bit more mixed uh, reaction to aid to state and, and states and cities. That's about $350 billion. And on and on as you go down the list of what's in this bill. So now, according to Politico, the White House is going to embark on a way to sell this program uh, tomorrow night. Biden will deliver his first prime time address. He's going to hold a, a, a news conference later this month. At least that's what Jen Psaki says. He's going to deliver, it's never called a State of the Union with a new president, but the equivalent of a State of the Union to Congress sometime, I guess, maybe they put it off till April. But those are speeches. So in addition, uh, Biden and top administration officials acknowledge, says political, they'll have to do more to ensure the benefits of their package sink into the public's consciousness. A lot of this has to do with President Obama's first year, because uh, when he passed the big stimulus package coming off of the, the financial crisis, the feeling was, and Obama had said, look, we tried to sell, but the feeling was they didn't do a good enough job in convincing people that the money, and it was an $800 billion package, was getting to them, was making their lives better. Some of it was tax cuts. A lot of it was, you know, uh, aid to businesses and so forth. Um, and Biden and his people want to make sure that they do the sales job. And look, look, that's politics 101. You pass $2 trillion, you don't want people to look back and say, yeah, well, what did this do for me? You want, you know, the fact that it has, you know, expanded tax credits for families with children, you want to hammer that home. So, of course, Biden will go on the road and Kamala Harris will go on the road and key cabinet officers will be out there. Uh, but now, says political, there'll be fewer scripted events uh, and more interactions with the press and appearances before the public. So we'll give president an opportunity to make more emotional appeals. Well, I think that's great. He should get out there. He should sell it. But he should talk to the press more. And it's not going to be just one press conference. He should do more interviews, not just friendly interviews with the likes of Anderson Cooper. He should go on a variety of shows. That's what presidents do. It is part of the job. Now, a more sympathetic take is in New York Magazine by uh, veteran Democrat uh, Ed Kilgore, who says, look, give Biden a break. He says he's, he's made progress on um, vaccines, uh, but he's being hit by criticism from multiple directions. Republicans have united in denouncing Biden's refusal to surrender his agenda in order to secure bipartisan unity says this New York Magazine piece. Uh, progressives are incensed by what happened on the minimum wage. That was very predictable, and that's true. You are not going to get a $15 minimum wage in this bill. You want to get it through some other legislation, maybe make it a little more gradual. Joe Manchin is saying it should start out at $11 an hour. There's a deal there. Even $11 an hour increase from $7.25 would be a pretty big deal. Anyway, Kilgore says, look, he wasn't a big Biden fan in the primaries. He um, voted for Elizabeth Warren. He worried about Biden's fetish for bipartisanship. I love that it's called a fetish. Um, he says, but come on, what specifically is the alternative path he could have pursued? Uh, Republican criticism is not worthy of any serious attention. This is a Democrat writing. The GOP is playing the same old tapes that recorded in 2009 when Obama and his sidekick Biden 
spend far too much time chasing Republican senators around Washington in search of compromises they never intended to make. So basically, it's a piece saying, uh, you know, Biden has done it right, and we should all cut him a break. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzbeater coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three. The continuing sort of warfare, uh, at least uh, pretty serious sniping between Donald Trump and the Republican Party continues. Um, So, as you recall, especially if you're a loyal listener to Media Buzzmeter, the former president sent cease and desist orders to the RNC and the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee saying, stop using my name, stop using my picture to raise money. I, I get to do that. You don't. And, you know, my lawyers are putting you on notice. And then these committees said, well, actually, we're going to keep doing that because, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, using the likeness of a foreign president is absolutely fair game with our First Amendment rights and blah, 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 blah. Well, now they've kind of compromised a little bit. Um, the latest thing is a statement released on Monday by the 45th president's office saying no more money for rhinos, Republicans in name only. He says people who want to give money should give to my website. So what this reflects, according to this piece in The Times, is that Trump is trying to wrest control of the low-dollar online fundraising uh, and he helped create this juggernaut. There's no question about it. I mean, right now, the Republican Party is Donald Trump. They may want to raise money separately, but the, the RNC, with the same chairman, Ronald McDaniel, appointed by Donald Trump, is a wholly owned subsidiary of Trump, Inc. It's just the way it is. But this rivalry over raising money uh, has developed because uh, the Trump people now believe, according to this story, that the big donors, which Trump used to, from whom Trump used to raise a lot of money, uh, are kind of taking a break. They're kind of glad he's out of office. They are kind of, you know, they're upset about the Capitol riot and they don't want to give a lot of big bucks. So small money donors is the name of the game. Uh, while the big donors kind of distance themselves. But also Trump is pissed off uh, because he feels like some of these Republican leaders were disloyal when they distanced themselves from him after the riot of January 6th. And he's talking to people like and this is a scooplet, Dick Morris. Dick Morris was this longtime Republican consultant who then became a secret advisor to President Clinton, except he got outed just before uh, the Democratic convention when Clinton was running for election in 96. Um, and it was controversial because Dick Morris was considered, you know, a, a Republican mole. And then Dick Morris himself got outed for some of his sexual practices, and so then he left Clinton's employ. And now, I guess he went back to being a Republican, and now Donald Trump is talking to him. The Times describes him as the notorious political consultant known for flipping between the parties, who's been meeting with him in New York and encouraging him to take on the party he once led. So Morris is telling uh, Donald what he wants to hear. So uh, the chief counsel of the RNC says in a letter Monday, the RNC, of course, has every right to refer to public figures, blah, 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 blah. But in a sign of this kind of dance, uh, this lawyer also said that the RNC had not and would not make fundraising appeals using Trump's name or likeness without his approval. Well, that's a total cave. It's one thing to say you have the right to do it. It's another thing to say you're not going to do it without this guy's permission. So in so then Trump kind of walked back his criticism, but that's where the rhino thing comes in. 
this is yesterday, I believe, for the Save America PAC. Quote, I fully support the Republican Party and important GOP committees, but I do not support rhinos and fools. And it is not their right to use my likeness or image to raise funds. But he gave, and he gave another plug to his group. If you donate to our Save America PAC at DonaldTrump.com, DonaldJTrump.com, excuse me, you don't want to send you to the wrong place. You are helping the America First movement and doing it right. So they're ultimately going to have to learn to get along, especially when we get closer to the 2022 midterms. All right, number four. Uh, look, uh, I spent a lot of time yesterday. I've got a whole column today about um, the fallout from the Harry and Meghan Oprah interview and how this has just created absolute uproar in Britain. And I picked up on a political piece that I talked about in the podcast yesterday where conservatives here in the former colonies uh, tend to be supporting the monarchy and trashing Meghan Markle. And liberals here in the U.S. of A. Uh, tend to be very sympathetic to Meghan Markle and her complaints of racism and other uh, complaints of being overly controlled and neglected by Buckingham Palace and to be critical of the monarchy. But what's going down with Piers Morgan is just fascinating. So Piers Morgan, and, and I, I recommend the column to you on foxnews.com. And, you know, some guy on Twitter says, you know, we're about to pass a major $2 trillion bill and this is what you write about? But look, first of all, you write a column every day. Once in a while, you look for a change of pace, okay? Give me a break. Secondly, this is an absolute global media phenomenon. It's fascinating. It's Everybody has an opinion on this around the world. I mean, it's not just Britain. It's not just America. It's all the other former British colonies, Canada. Uh, and then you have the Pierce Morgan thing, which I just think is incredible. I watched a clip of it this morning. So Pierce Morgan, as you know by now, stormed off the set of Good Morning Britain on ITV because one of his co-hosts was criticizing him for just absolutely trashing Meghan Markle and saying, you know, you used to have a relationship with her and now you don't, and she's not trashing you while you're trashing her. It wasn't really that bad by American cable news standards. It made me think that Piers was looking for an out. You know, he's just, he'd spun out totally on Meghan Markle. But the new information, not denied by ITV, this is according to the Daily Telegraph, is that Meghan Markle herself submitted a formal complaint to ITV about him after he said, the worst thing that Pierce said was he didn't believe her. She said she was having suicidal thoughts. She didn't want to live anymore. He didn't believe her. He doesn't believe anything she says. And this was like, oh my God, you know, she's reaching out and trying to set an example for people with mental health issues around the world. And you're saying you don't believe her. So that's why it became such a fuss. But this also got referred to this Ofcom, which is the British media regulator, and this shows you, uh, you know, in Britain, there is some government regulation of the media in a way that does not exist. I mean, sure, you have FCC licenses, but it's supposed to be about in the public service. The FCC is supposed to have, no, first of all, doesn't regulate cable news at all. And it's supposed to have nothing to say about the content, even of the television networks, unless obscenity is involved in certain cases. But in Britain, with no First Amendment, you know, this Ofcom could actually order um, you know, I don't know, order, what would it order ITV to do? It could actually step in and try to make amends. So Piers is loving this. He went on Twitter and he posted a picture of Winston Churchill and he quoted Churchill and he himself said, freedom of speech is a hill I'm happy to die on. Thanks for all the love and hate. I'm off to spend more time with my opinions. And then um, he talks to reporters who are staking out his house. 
He says, I think the damage she's done to the British monarchy and to the Queen at a time when Prince Philip is lying in a hospital is enormous and frankly contemptible. If I have to fall on my sword for expressing an honestly held opinion about Meghan Markle on that diatribe of bilge that she came out with in that interview, so be it. And then he says, I think the, it's fair to say, although the woke crowd will think they've canceled me, I think they'll be rather disappointed when I reemerge. And he always reemerges. This is a guy who was a tabloid um, editor and then got into TV and then came over here and had a show on CNN. Ultimately, that didn't pan out. Goes back to Britain. Uh, he was writing a column there for the Daily Mail. I don't know if he still is. And then uh, got this breakfast. You know, I guess he's been on that uh, Good Morning Britain for seven years. So it was a pretty big fan franchise, somewhere between five and seven years. And it blows the whole thing up. He didn't have to storm off the set. He didn't have to quit. Maybe the quitting was saving face because ITV had had enough of him. But he always, you know, he has a certain knack. No wonder he became friendly with Donald Trump. And then, of course, their relationship uh, ended up blowing up as well uh, because they sort of share that salesmanship gene, that self-promoting gene. And I mean that as a high compliment, Pierce, who I've interviewed a few times and he's always been very entertaining on my show. Maybe I should try to get him this week. All right, number five. Interesting piece in The Atlantic about Andrew Cuomo, who, as you know, the book publisher has just walked away from the book. He's not going to promote it anymore. Republicans in Albany are calling for impeachment. That's not going to happen. Some Democrats, including the Senate majority leader, want him to resign. That's not going to happen, at least not until the state attorney general completes this uh, investigation of the sexual harassment claims. There's now a six-woman who's anonymous. It's not really clear the details of what she's saying, but something about inappropriate touching. So it's possible more will come out. And then you also have the nursing home scandal. So the Atlantic says it's becoming clear. This is probably the worst thing you could say uh, to Democrats about Andrew Cuomo. It's becoming clear that Andrew Cuomo and Donald Trump, two tough guys from Queens who grew up in Queens, uh, share certain qualities, including, according to the Atlantic, a dubious handling of the coronavirus, punctuated by premature declarations of victory, okay, allegations of sexual harassment, true, and a tendency to create toxic workplaces, which is the theme of a major Washington Post story of the weekend, quoting men and women, and going back to when he was uh, running HUD for Bill Clinton, as saying, you know, he yelled at people and he picked on people and it was kind of a very uncomfortable place to work. The people who are Cuomo defenders say, look, he, he's an LBJ type, he twists arms, he kicks butt, he plays power politics, because that's how you get results. The fallout from the governor's scandal, says The Atlantic, has revealed another thing that links Trump and Cuomo, an insistence that accountability for their actions is somehow an affront to voters. Well, this is an old playbook, as the piece acknowledges. Uh, but Cuomo said to reporters on Sunday, there are some legislators who suggest I resign because of accusations that are made against me. I was elected by the people of the state. I wasn't elected by politicians. I'm not going to resign because of allegations. The premise of resigning because of allegations is actually anti-democratic. Well, uh, when the House impeached Donald Trump for the first time, Trump's lawyer said the articles of impeachment submitted by House Dems are a dangerous attack on the right of the American people to freely choose their president. This is a bizarre and unlawful attempt to overturn the results of the 2016 election. It's pretty much, you know, the Cuomo playbook. A year later, a different Trump lawyer in the second impeachment said, history will record this shameful effort as a deliberate attempt by the Democrat Party to smear, censor, and cancel not just President Trump, but the 75 million Americans who voted for him. And look, 
Um, it is true that when you are in the process of having people say you should resign, when you're in the process of being impeached, you say, hey, I'm not going to do any of these things. It's a witch hunt. It's unfair. It's partisan. It's the other party trying to cancel the election. My responsibility is to the people who elected me. Now, when Donald Trump says it, you know, the mainstream media are like, no, uh, you, 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 you're trying to steal the 2020 election and you try to undermine the 2020 election by, by asking Ukraine for dirt on Biden. Uh, back during the first impeachment, and it is a responsibility, it's in the Constitution, for you to be held accountable. Well, with Governor Cuomo, it's also in the New York State Constitution, although there's only been one other New York governor who's been impeached. It was like 1913, and he was accused of fraud and fundraising, and I believe he was successfully impeached. I don't recall the right gentleman's name. Uh, but basically, it doesn't even, there's not even a phrase like high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, impeachment in New York State is whatever the assembly in bringing in impeachment or the state senate in conducting a trial says it is. But I do find it interesting that, you know, and the piece does point out that the allegations of sexual assault against Donald Trump and sexual harassment, in many cases, more serious than the allegations against Andrew Cuomo, but that doesn't let the governor off the hook. I mean, when you have, I mean, you, we all watched uh, the Charlotte Bennett interview with the CBS's Nora O'Donnell. I mean, he, she, he ruined her life. You know, she had to quit the job. He wanted to sleep with her, and he made that clear. And he doesn't even dispute that. He talks about, I didn't mean to make anybody uncomfortable. And to varying degrees, of different women who have come out, whether it's an allegation of an unwanted kiss by Lindsey Boylan or, you know, an accusation by somebody who later became a Democratic opponent, Karen Hinton, who told uh, the Wall Street Journal, I believe, or maybe the Washington Post, or the Wall Street Journal. One of those newspapers... Um, that Cuomo had hugged her too long in what was supposed to be a make-up session, not a make-out session, in a hotel room after she was no longer working for him. Anyway, a lot has to play out here. Uh, but I think it is an interesting observation that these two guys, who both grew up with strong fathers, Fred Trump was you know, the real estate mogul whose money gave Donald Trump his start. Mario Cuomo was the three-term governor, who, and Andrew Cuomo worked for his dad helped him get elected, uh, and then later, you know, ran for governor, got clobbered, uh, ran HUD, ran for attorney general in New York, was elected, and that led to his three terms. And, you know, it may just be the three terms is enough for anybody, as we are seeing here now. Well, hope you have a great day, folks. Uh, if you would like to subscribe to this podcast, you probably know by now where you can do it, you know, on your Amazon device, Amazon Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple iTunes, Hope to see you back here tomorrow when I'll have even more buzzword. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.